I'm in my mid-twenties and I have been for over 60 years. My long-lost sister just re-entered my life, turned out to be a villain and killed me. But don't worry, I got better. Comic book tropes. The byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. It is episode 98, and in this week's episode, we're tackling the most annoying comic book tropes, specifically in superhero storytelling. I'm uh, Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and as always, before we dive into the meat and potatoes segment of the Big Talk, it is time for... Chris, what's new? Okay, so uh, Discovery has finalized their purchase of Warner Media in a $43 billion deal. And it looks as though David Zaslav, who uh, is now the CEO of the combined companies, is doing a little bit of reshuffling, it would seem, when it comes to DC superhero content, um, uh, as far as the big screen or small screen goes. Um it looks like he is searching for a quote, I'm quoting the variety piece, creative and strategic czar, end quote, something along the lines of what Marvel has in Kevin Feige. It's interesting, though, because um, the article details how they've spent too much time trying to punch up, pun intended, against Marvel and, you know, just trying to, I, I think of the uh, the Mr. Bean scene where he's like trying to copy the other person's paper. Uh, I feel like that's a lot of DC to Marvel content um, <laughs> in some respects. But so in, in one breath, they're saying they don't want to copy too much from what Marvel is doing anymore. But at the same time, they're trying to get like a head honcho puppet master of every of everything now um the article of course details that the recent success that that dc uh eu has had with things like aquaman the batman uh the joker and um uh, birds of prey um and then even you know with the success and and uh, of peacemaker coming off of the suicide squad and so they feel encouraged by that but it looks like they are also disappointed with um the use or lack thereof of Superman. And Superman is a character, of course, if not the most, one of the most identifiable characters from DC comments, uh, kind of being shelved for the past few years, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League notwithstanding. Um, so it'll be interesting to see just what happens with this next step. Um, I think we talked about this a couple of months ago when the the prospective deal of Discovery taking over and we didn't really know what to make of it, but it looks like there is going to be a significant shape up, uh, shake up. Now, Walter Hamada is still uh, under contract uh, until the end of 2023, so that remains to be seen if he will be retained. Um, much has been made about his problematic inclusion or, or handling of the situation with Ray Fisher. So 
who knows at this point, but specifically saying that they want Superman to be included, that has to be music to your ears, Dave. So first of all, I still am completely mind blown that we live in a world where Warner didn't buy Discovery, Discovery bought Warner. I mean, that just, what a sign of the times, how the world has changed over the last 20, 30 years. Um, is this encouraging as a Superman fan? To a certain extent, certainly. Um I'm not uh, encouraged by the fact that they're looking for some kind of creative czar. I think the Marvel uh, model that they've kind of built works extremely well for Marvel, but let's not pretend that there haven't been hiccups in that particular regard too. And that even Marvel itself is starting to slowly move away from that model. Um, Because really what was Feige's role for the most part, especially sort of uh, when, when the MCU really started kicking, it was uh, to to sort of even out, um, uh, the, the Marvel tone, right? So so everything felt kind of of the same cloth. And even now we're dealing with sort of a fatigue setting in and, and the projects that have a significantly different tone or go in a different direction are the ones that are usually more uh, appreciated and acclaimed these days. So having somebody to kind of like, you know, make sure that all the DC movies feel of a, a cloth, I think is really, really um, misreading the room. The reason that something like, um, the Joker or something even like um, Peacemaker on HBO Max, uh, th- that those have been decently successful is because they're kind of hard to put into a particular box as far as, you know, a superhero movie storytelling. They, they, they feel kind of like their own thing. And I think that is probably the much better route to go. Now, as far as the Superman thing is concerned, look, uh, this this blows my mind as much as you know, the new owners of WB, how in, in God's green earth, they cannot figure out how to use the most recognizable superhero on the face of the earth, Superman. It's just like mind blowing to me. It has been mind blowing to me for years. And yeah, Zack Snyder's Justice League, notwithstanding, because that hardly qualifies as Superman, how the character is portrayed in that movie. Um, Maybe it's time for somebody just to stand up at Warner and say, how about we don't try to reinvent the wheel? How about we just try to tell a really good Superman story? Let's not try to make the character hip or fresh or different or new. Let's just put a really, really good Superman story up on the big screen. It's not like there isn't a metric crap ton of really good comic book projects that could serve as inspiration or basis for a movie. If you look, for example, at you know the whole... Uh, Captain America Winter Soldier thing. I mean, the movie and the the comic book storyline are significantly different, but they used the comic book as a jumping off point to tell a really good story. You know, didn't reinvent Captain America or try to make him something he's not. They just told a really good Captain America story. And that's what I'm still waiting for, uh, for, you know, Warner to do with Superman. I mean, it's, it's really, really, really pathetic that the last really awesome, good, highly successful Superman movie was Superman 2 with Chris Reeve, where the quality uh, and the success sort of matched each other. Uh, we've we've not had anything that good since. And, and it's, that's just unforgivable. I mean, from a business perspective, even, how can you not exploit one of the most recognizable characters on, on God's green earth? I will never understand. So does this give me some kind of hope? Eh, they've botched it before. We've heard, you know, nice words before. We've had regime change at Warner before. These are all, you know, not new things. Um, I'm hoping that they'll finally find a good direction. But you know what? I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. 
<clears throat> and, and and as far as the point of of having a, a centralized figure at the top of this, I don't know that that's the direction to go. I think the reason that Kevin Feige, you know, functioned in the role that he did is because they were building something from a ground up. And that was the initial plan from the start. I don't think bringing in someone at this stage in the game uh, is really makes a whole lot of sense. And and so I don't think it's an, an apples to apples comparison per se, just because they're the two big comic book companies and publishers uh, of content. I think um, I think the wiser thing, just from me on the outside looking in as a consumer, I would much more in line be in line with looking at something like like kind of trying to distill the successful properties uh, or not properties, but the successful productions that you've had, what is the common thread between something like Peacemaker or um, Birds of Prey or um, Shazam or Aquaman? Like what do these things have in common? Why have they worked? What's the secret sauce there rather than... Ooh, 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 ooh. teach, teach, teach. Call, call on me, teach. I, I, have, I have it. I know the answer to yeah, this. Yes, Dave. <laughs> so as it turns out, the secret sauce is simply involving directors, writers, and generally creators who actually feel passionate about the character and don't feel the need to completely try to reinvent them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like... And there's nothing that is super connected universe uh of of those productions either i mean like you can have a, a film called birds of prey which if we're being honest it's truly they should have just called it the emancipation of harley quinn or whatever whatever Agreed. the adjective there are some adjectives that i missed out all apologies um but um you know we can reference joker offhand uh you know like it, most of the people coming to those films, even the casual comic book content consumers, look at that alliteration, know the history between Harley Quinn and Joker. For Pete's sake, just do a quick Google search and you get it. You don't have to have this like right in your face kind of stuff. So you don't have to have this super connected universe stuff to be successful. Like That's not the only path to take and especially this late in the game i think it would be a huge misstep to go so much so in a different direction just take the successes of what you have take the supplies I'm, I'm playing a lot of video games right now take the loot what you got and move on see the thing is too that you know they they walked into um they walked into man of steel already hoping that two movies down the line they're making justice league and that was not the case when Marvel walked into making Iron Man. Somebody you know, like, made somebody made a great point the other day. They said Avengers was the tenth film in the franchise. Exactly, and so you know, you go ahead and sit down and try to make a really good Superman movie without your eye on the horizon of oh, we're going to make you know a billion dollars on Justice League. Like, just make a really good Superman movie. Do everything you can to make that sucker the best it can be. And then you, the success will come. And then you already have a really good Batman movie, let's be honest. So then what, el what else ingredients do we need so we can build towards the Justice League? And just take your time with the individual movies. You know, make a really, really good Green Lantern movie. I'm still waiting for that. Never make a seen fantastic that one. <laughs> nope. Never seen make that. A fan make a fantastic Martian Manhunter movie. Oh my God, please. Like, 
I have such a pitch for oh, Martian Manhunter. Movie. I think we it's talked about that. Funny, I, we talked about that one. Yeah, like yeah, I remember that. I I I I just I could talk about that all day. And then you know, after you have like four or five characters like that introduced in their own solo movies and they're really good, you know, pop out a couple of sequels, and then you can start looking at maybe hey, we, we might be able to get these characters together. But nobody made Iron Man thinking they're making Avengers. Like they made Iron Man thinking, oh, I hope this is gonna work, and and that that is what Warner needs. They need to stop taking the next step for granted. They need to stop looking to the horizon. That's one of the problems that happened with Amazing Spider-Man Two. Sony was looking three, four movies down the line, yep. and yep. they didn't quality control uh, and have an eyeball on the movie they were yep. making. Let's go ahead and make good movies, and then the success and the crossovers and all of that that will come, but only if you keep your eye on the ball and make good movies in the now and as a macro person like i appreciate that approach too because when you take the slow game approach like your second movie right out of the gate of the mcu incredible hulk meh mooey meh at best so you can kind of give yourself like a mulligan on that and be able to move forward and be like okay we could just recast it nobody needs ed norton and his antics you know going forward so we could just recast him as mark ruffalo and it's not that big a shake-up like it's not like this world-rending shake-up just to recast one actor um you know, and and not not to bring it back to the nth degree on our day jobs, but I mean, it's what we are, so it's what we know. But we have different types of learners, different types of students. Just because something works for one student doesn't mean it has to be that way for another student. If I have a set list of objectives that I need them to achieve, I need a set list of vocabulary or grammatical structures and sentence structures that they have to accomplish. And one student does better with a paper test or a a standard formal assessment. And another one struggles with that, but can thrive. They can make the heck out of a Google Slides presentation when they can make it their own, then why would I stand in the way of that? So just because something works for Marvel doesn't necessarily mean it has to work for DC. We don't have to measure by the same metric. I totally agree with that. That That is a wonderful way to put it. Why, thank you. <laughs> very welcome. All right, Dave. Oh, boy. I, I am very nervous about going into this territory, but we have some confirmation news. Yeah, I am. I am. I am. Uh, I don't even know. I'm so ambivalent now about all this. So uh, recently, um, there was a article in Empire Magazine, scans of which have found their way, of course, online. Uh, the uh, article was about the Disney Plus series, Miss Marvel, uh, which our long-time listeners know. I, I'm very passionate about that character. Um, and so there were some exclusive stills, as well as an interview with producer Sana Amanat. And as it turns out, here we get finally official confirmation that Kamala Khan's powers have, in fact, been changed. The thing that uh, you know social media has been speculating about based on you know footage released and images released, it is all true. Uh, Her powers are described in the Empire Magazine article as cosmic super strength and the ability to manifest purple crystals via a pair of bangles. End quote. Can she she walk like an Egyptian? I don't even know, man. I don't know what to tell you. Like, this this is... I, I don't understand this move. I know that speculation is that, you know... St- stretchy powers don't look good 
uh, in special effects. But hey, we're, we're heading for a Fantastic Four movie. I'm assuming they're working on figuring out how to pull that off. I think um, that's I think that's the bigger reason, honestly, to separate the two. And, but but you know what? That's bullcrap. I know I, mean, I, I know it is. I know it is. But as a, it's, it, I know for the for the so, normies, I know. So so for, first of all, we go ahead and we say she cannot be, you know, have this unique set of powers because Mister Fantastic is coming in a few years. Yet at the same time, what they have done with her powers, from what we have seen, is basically turn her into I don't know Marvel's Green Lantern. Like, is there anybody who doesn't like shoot? energy beams in, in in marvel at this point everybody's just shooting energy beams out of their butts like why why did we have to do this with, with kamala khan as well it seems so silly the other problem of course is that now her powers are not um internalized they're not a part of her um which is actually a pretty important overall plot point when it comes to Miss Marvel, you know, self-acceptance and accepting herself for who she is and everything. Um, so that goes out the window. Now she has, you know, these these external bangles that she's going to be wearing that give her her powers. Um, and on top of that, now we're getting into this whole speculation that maybe these these bangles are actually the negabands, this this weapon that has been associated with, with Captain Marvel comic books in the past. And, and it's just... I don't know, man, like besides being Miss Marvel, you know, like bearing that name and being a big fan of Carol Danvers. One of the cool things about Kamala Khan is that she very much stands on her own, you know, like her, her powers are not derivative of the other Marvel characters. She's kind of her own person, her own kind of hero, using her powers in her own kind of way. And here we just... We're just like once again taking something that's really unique and we're ironing out all the quote unquote uniqueness, rough edges, whatever you want to call it, to, to make it more palatable to what general audiences. This is exactly what I was talking about earlier um, when we're talking about Marvel sort of trying to, to you know, unify everything, to, to take sort of the uniqueness out, out of everything. And they've been criticized for that quite a bit already. So what is what is so horrible with having a character that, you know, embiggens, like that word is literally Kamala Khan's word, you know, like embiggen, it's, it's, it's a, a battle cry and a description of what she does at the same time. And all of that is now down the toilet. And I'm not saying that this show is not going to be good. And I'm not saying that the performances aren't good. And I'm not saying that it can't be, you know, interesting or successful. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying that as a fan of the comic books, I find this decision extremely disappointing. It reminds me a little bit of um, the stories that you heard about uh, producer, you know, John Peters back in the day when they were trying to make a Superman movie that eventually Tim Burton got involved with. I don't know. It's probably for nerds like one of the most uh, famous clips ever is Kevin Smith talking about his brief time trying to actually write that movie for, for John Peters. And you know, the kind of things that, that John Peters said about Superman. I don't want him to fly. I don't want him to have that suit. Give him a different suit. Like, it, at some point, you, you keep ironing away the things that made the comic book character the comic book character. How far can you go before that character ceases to be that character and becomes something entirely different? 
And I don't know. And, you know, may, maybe this version of Kamala Khan is going to be still very much Kamala. I mean, maybe she's going to be still herself and the power change is just a minor shift. But man, the way she relates to her powers is a really important part of her character development. And unless they have really thought this through, it's not just a cosmetic change, but they really thought about how this affects her character arc. I don't I don't see how this is going to work, Chris. I think this is, by and large, one of the negative byproducts from a corporation trying to water down comic book content for the mass, the general pop audience. Um, and I think it's a misstep from their perspective. I don't, I, I, I think they should be able to trust said audience more. Like, uh, you know, trying to explain away these powers based on something they've seen before. Like you can introduce new and innovative things to a general audience. Um, at the same time, I, I can't, I can't help but think of uh, back to 2002 Spider-Man when we saw Tobey Maguire not have web shooters, but giant wrist zits <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that, that were a great, there were a great um, little nugget uh, of uh, No Way Home. So just having that brought there. And I remember being so relieved in advance of an amazing Spider-Man uh, when they were like, it was revealed that they were in fact going to have the actual web shooters and stuff. Um, so but compare, kinda... but I think, but I think Chris comparatively, you know, the, the whole organic web shooter thing, although very, very, very silly uh, when compared to the comics is, is, is a kind of a minor blip because functionally speaking, Spidey's right. powers still work the same, right? He's still right. shooting webs and swinging through the city. Uh, you know, this is more if they decided, like, let's just get rid of the, the you know, whole web thing completely and Spider-Man is now going to fly through the city. Like, it's just, it's a it's a radical shift for the character. Right. And and so, like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping can still be the case. And, and like, we can still get... Because I think what what draws people to Kamala Khan at her core, I think, and this is a per, this is coming from a perspective, and this is something that I encounter a lot in my interactions with other you know members of the fandoms that I ascribe to is I'm never I, I'm I'm always dialogue first. I'm always, I'm a big novel reader, so like give me the words and the text. So I look more at like non aesthetic things. So. For my approach, I'm hoping what what draws me to Kamala Khan, what makes me a fan of her, is not her power set, not her outfits, not any of those things that a lot of people cling to. Mine is what I love about Kamala is her pure heart, is her dorky nature. She gives me vibes of um, one of my new favorite characters uh, from Star Trek Discovery uh, over the past few years has been Ensign Tilly. So I love Ensign Tilly, like that nervous, dorky nature, just falling all over yourself. Um, I'm falling, uh, you know, not to put the cart before the horse next week's episode, but uh, in the final season of DS9, we get Ezri Dax, and it's very much that same kind of introduction, like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Am I am I out of my league here? Should I even be here? Do I belong here? And I get the same vibe from Kamala in the in the stories that I've read with her. I'm not anywhere near as much uh, in, in depth with her uh, source materials I would like to be, but the team ups with all the Spider Men uh, that I've seen with her, I absolutely adore, and that's something that draws me to her. And so that's something that I'm hoping, um, you know, that we can still capture in this show. 
All right, well, there you go. There we have our uh, nerd news. Stick around because we're getting ready to get into some superhero comic book tropes after the break. And we're back, ladies and gentle people. And here we have the topic that uh, Chris and I have avoided to tackle for almost 100 episodes. Get ready for this week's... As we tackle superhero comic book tropes, both Chris and myself have chosen three specific tropes that keep popping up in superhero storytelling that we just think, you know, it's about enough. Maybe it's time to retire this stuff. So, uh, Chris, go ahead and get us your first comic book trope that really just rubs you the wrong way. Well, just a peek behind the curtain. This episode idea was birthed immediately after we hit the stop button on last week's episode because we were talking about some of the worst tropes uh, showing up in in Beyond. Um, and so, you know, we we're just like hit the stop button. We're like, let's do this. Let's let's go straight in. So um, for me, um, believe it or not, I'm going to talk about Peter Parker um, is uh Peter Pan syndrome, and it, it, and and this is not exclusive to Peter Parker. It is the first one that comes to mind with the dissolution of their marriage, um, the devilish dissolution of their marriage. Um, they can't ever have kids. Like all of this stuff, they refuse to let their primary protagonist grow up. Even in you know X Men comics, my other great fandom. Uh, as far as comic books go, um, if someone has a baby, it's usually like a secondary or tertiary character and they are shelved because there's apparently no childcare in the Marvel universe. Uh, no babysitters, uh, care.com does not exist in Marvel. So, um, it's just really regrettable that everybody is perpetually 25, uh, in the prime of their youth. Um, some of the, you know, the most relatable, things in superhero comics what i loved about uh no way home was they were talking about their back pain and how they combat it and they were helping each other stretch before battle like that was relatable you know um some people would list marvel's sliding time scale as one of their biggest tropes but i i would i don't know that i would go that far because i think it's an inevitable thing when you're trying to tell stories with the same characters for 60 plus years um 80 years in, in some cases. But for me, one of the the most regrettable things is this never grow up scenario. And it's just like, it's not a natural thing. And, you know, with your primary demographic, probably, you know, beyond that 25 uh, year age, 25 years of age group, um, it's just not relatable. So, I mean, like, there's a reason that we pounce on stories like um, Renew Your Vows, where you actually have character progression. Like, it's not just wash, rinse, repeat of, you know, your your early to mid-20s and no attachments, no strings attached and all these things, but, like, having actual consequences and, like, seeing those consequences pay dividend into raising this child creating a new character in Annie Mae Parker, who's one of my faves and is nowhere to be found now. Um, 
because it's an AU story. So it's just really, really frustrating that nobody can grow up uh, in, in comics. And it's, it's, and then once you do something happens, some shenanigans take place and we're right back at square one. And I think, uh, you know, part of this is the obvious function of American superhero comics that they are not allowed to um, end. Right. I mean, these are, properties that have been in publication on and off or sometimes even continuously you know in in some cases with like dc since like the late 30s early 40s and obviously they don't want that cash cow to end and if you let uh certain characters grow up and get older then you know the implication is that eventually they're going to die and move on and you have you know replacement characters and although dc has done really well i think with the notion of legacy they have not done so well with letting the quote-unquote originals go um so i understand that from a business perspective you know uh you, you want to keep these characters around but i totally agree that the notion that nobody can get older is absolutely ridiculous they did some really neat stuff um recently with having like um in superman and the authority of having like superman have these gray temples which i thought was a really really cool look for him you know it, it kind of suits the character the the elder statesman kind of thing of the, of the superhero world and then they explained it away with no no he's not aging there's just some stuff happening with his powers and i'm like gosh darn it you know you were almost there you almost got it um if you look at like um spider-man's uh situation which you know is is your jumping off point for this um you know, with a character like Miles who can carry the torch for a younger character, there is really very little reason for Peter Parker not to be able to get a little older, you know? Um, and when you have those characters in the wings, um, it just kind of defies explanation that they can't do something with that. Like, if you look at, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, when they got rid of, you know, Barry Allen and he died, and his sidekick, Kit Flash, Wally West, had to grow up and become the next Flash. You know, that that was great character progression. But then you bring Barry back, and suddenly you have these two Flashes there. Somebody's gonna get the short end of the stick. And for some reason, it almost looks like they're the same age now, which is just really bizarre, you know? Um, and the same thing happened with Hal Jordan, you know, I mean, Hal Jordan started turning gray before he, you know, turned evil and then eventually died. And you had a younger guy stepping in, Kyle Rayner, to become Green Lantern. Then they bring Hal back. Of course, he's magically, you know, de-aged. There's no gray streak. Suddenly, they're basically the same age. Um, it, it's really, really regressive uh, is is what I'm saying. So, so could I see a situation where um, Superman grows older and isn't maybe not replaced, but sort of supplanted as the world's greatest hero by a next generation character like his son, John Kent. Absolutely. And I think that is an interesting scenario and one that is worth exploring. Um, even even with Batman now, we have a situation where you have a storytelling happening, the next Batman, which is also really, really interesting scenario. Um, I don't think they'll ever completely let go of the quote unquote OG characters, but I don't also don't think that there is anything to be gained from having them perpetually in their twenties. Um, when they did the new 52 reboot over at DC, they compressed the timeline so much to keep Bruce Wayne young that he basically went through like four Robins over the course of five years, which is like not a very good track record. I think for Batman <laughs> overall, like it's just way, way too your, fast. Your, you know? your turnover, your turnover rate as an employer, Bruce is not great. <laughs> 
And ha- and and what is the drawback of having a Bruce Wayne who's you know maybe in his you know late thirties or early forties? And that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is like that was going to be my next point. Is like I'm not asking for the world. I'm not asking for Batman Beyond where he's suddenly in a geriatric state. I what what's what's wrong with him being 35, 40? Like that's not the end of the world. He can still suit up. But like having just swinging right back to twenty five. I don't know why that's my focal point. Just that's the vibes I get, but it's, it's just, there's, and it's incredibly limiting too, from a storytelling perspective that you are penciling yourself in to this one corner of human existence and there's no growth. You know, you and I talked about this a lot. We talked about being upset at killing off black widow in um, Endgame because there was a lot of growth of that character and it was just stunted right there because she was dead. And so you are leaving yourself by keeping them at X age. You want to talk about something that's extremely limiting. I mean, we already know that Hollywood has a crap ton of ageism going on, but you know, before the whole Henry Cavill thing went down with Superman, there were several other, you know, attempts at having a Superman movie again. And one of the names that was bandied about, uh, a lot as somebody who would p- probably portray a fantastic Superman. It was um, John Hamm. Uh, oh my Mad god! The, the dude. Oh the dude is god. currently. The dude is currently fifty-one years old. At the time when his name was being bandied about, he was like late thirties, early forties. I think early forties. And they were like, "No, he's he's too old for the role." And I'm like, "No, no, he is not." If you're, te- you don't have to tell an origin story. If you tell a story about a more experienced Superman, a Superman in his early forties is perfectly acceptable as you know a character in a Superman story. Why does he have to be in his late? 20s or or mid 20s like I, I i would i thought john ham would have been fantastic as superman he has that exact vibe you know that that easy charm you know it's just it would be so so good even now at him 51 i'm like can we get an elder statesman superman movie because i'm still riding for this guy superman so so yeah the 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 peter pan syndrome of comic books is is really disappointing because it is so limiting now, I want to make my statement clear. I can't speak for you, Dave, but this is no slight towards Henry Cavill. I love him. Not at all. I love him as Superman. In fact, my news story for this week before I saw the Discovery stuff come across my timeline was originally going to be some of those cast announcements. Menger Zhang, who we loved in Shang-Chi, is going to be joining season three, and I could not be more excited. I am seeing The Witcher as like this amalgamation of the fandoms that I wish I was more into. I wish I was more into Lord of the Rings, but I don't feel it's as approachable as something like The Witcher is. I feel it's much more accessible, if that makes sense. And it takes Henry Cavill, who I'm dying to see more Superman content from, and good quality Superman content from, and it's putting him in the starring role, and he's acting his ass off, and it is wonderful. So this is a Henry Cavill stand uh, right here. I just wish whatever. And as far as you're saying with ageism, one of the one of the popular things that I saw come across X Twitter that I would love, um, as far as like a live action Mystique and her wife um, Destiny, is real life 
partners, Sarah Paulson and Holland Taylor, who have a distinct age difference between the two of them. I believe Sarah Paulson is 47 and um, Holland Taylor is 79. So there's, and Destiny, if you, you know, read the classic comics, she looks, they both are of advanced age, but Destiny aesthetically is presented as appearing to be much older. So uh, I would love to see something like that. And uh, all the ages... Uh, can get wrecked because I love Henry Cavill and I love John Hamm. Both, please. Thank you. Yeah, the thing also about Henry Cavill is that nothing that happened in Man of Steel or Batman v Superman or, or even, you know, Justice League is on him. You know, like his his performance was what was asked for in the script. But I'm just, I'm so desperate to see that man just one time get a shot at at doing like a more comics accurate Superman. I think he would blow it out of the water. I've I've shouted it from the rooftops a bajillion times, but it's the same situation with Andrew Garfield. And then I didn't want to say I told you so, but look how everybody loves our guy Andrew after No Way Home. When you give him quality content. That's exactly right, man. All right, Dave. uh, So that one trope turned into a whole lot of mess so i'm gonna tag you in partner what you got uh you know um i it's not exactly superhero death i am um tired of but i am tired of superhero death being meaningless especially you know when we're looking at comic books from the big two when somebody dies they they very very quickly usually get better and even when they have some kind of plan um, it usually has now this sort of cyclical two-year thing at most going on. There have been characters that have died and gotten better in superhero comics so quickly that just being a little bit behind in the monthly output at the big two, I knew that they were coming back before I ever had a chance to read that they had died. Um, the, the turnaround is, is absolutely ridiculous, and it is not done anymore for the most part, as an interesting storytelling technique uh, to open up, you know, new storytelling avenues. Predominantly, superhero death is now conducted for shock value, um, and then immediately undone because, well, the death has served its purpose. It provided shock. It provided some kind of high stakes moment in, you know, the newest crossover comic book. And and but there was no long term plan of what this means, and and if it opens up new story possibilities. And to me, any action, especially a character death, uh, in in a long form situation like comic books, needs to open up new storytelling possibilities. So you're looking at you know the death of Superman, for example, uh, which is sort of the, the the point when this became like. Oh, oh, we can kill off characters and get huge boosts to our, you know, cells. They had this very intricate plan already in place. Okay, we're going to not unveil, you know, Superman's back, but we're going to have these four replacement characters. One of them is going to turn out to be evil. The rest are going to be like new characters that are going to get their own series when, you know, Superman does return. So it opened up these possibilities. Suddenly, you know, we had, you know, Connor Ken, Superboy. Uh, suddenly we had, you know, Steel. Um so th- there was a plan in place that the death of Superman would open up new storytelling possibilities. And even there, uh, the return was kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, he wasn't really dead. He was just like almost dead. And then he just got like charged with a whole bunch of solar radiation to bring him back. But like, you know, how hokey has this stuff gotten? Batman dies in Final Crisis by being hit by, you know, 
Darkseid's Omega Beams. Oh, wait, he's not actually dead. He was transported back in time. Um, which, you know, and then you have like the whole thing with Captain America getting dead, only he's not really dead because there was something weird going on with the gun and it put him in like this state of limbo or whatever. And the Red Skull is going to try to take over his body. And like, like, and even those, at least there's some kind of like, plan behind it because captain america's death obviously gave us bucky as captain america which is a very interesting storyline but but more recently like the deaths just come hard and fast and then mean nothing and and i think the trope that i'm having a problem with is not necessarily superheroes dying but just like immediately getting better without there being any kind of plan or new storytelling possibilities opened up as a hardcore X-Men fan, with Jean Grey in particular in mind, all I can do is sit back and laugh at this point. <laughs> but um, I think one of the interesting... She's, di- she's, died, more- she's died more often than, than Kenny from South Park at this point, right? Like, <laughs> she- it's- I think she just died again just now as we were talking. Um- <laughs> <laughs> well, and she got better just now. Right. And, and that's one of the things, and I know um, Broken Record of we talked about you know like it's it's difficult to jump right in but one of the fascinating developments things that Jonathan Hickman did with the Krakoan era is take that trope off the table completely with resurrection protocols you have your backups in the cerebro and we have five mutants that can resurrect people stat and so that trope is being removed and you can't have that power in a storytelling thing and so then you know on on one side people are like okay you really can you know tell some better stories because you're not you know handcuffed to that trope or whatever but then you had you know some some negative reaction to that were like well what are the stakes or whatever thing like that and then as you develop something you can kind of play a little bit more with it and then you know you have the situation where after coming out of ten of swords um if you were to die in this place uh particular in a different section of the universe then your resurrection uh, get scrambled for whatever reason that they can't quite define. So if you die in Amenth, this other place, then your basically a virus gets uh, injected into your resurrection protocols. So we reintroduced the stakes and the impact of dying, but only in this one given place. And now this is a new tactic. So it, it kind of has taken this trope and turned it on its head and made it interesting, which is something I didn't think was possible, uh, you know, all these years later. Um, I think for me, when I think of characters who who die and, and come back, um, it, it's really funny. Um, I think retcons a, as a whole are frustrating. Like, it's just like, really? After, you know another you know reason we started talking about this episode was the whole phoenix mommy thing uh in just like the silliness of of like why are we even doing this um but you know i always think of like the two characters that have stayed dead at least in spider-man comics uh you know uncle ben and and the main line 616 gwen stacy they've stayed pretty dead um, but then, then again, for me, that introduces its its own level of tropes because he's chasing after ghosts or he's continually haunted by these two ghosts all the time. Um, 
and and this might be blasphemy, but I it's it's a little heavy handed when you have you know Ben's ghost like talking with him all the time. That's a little bit frustrating. Like we get it, we know the story. I don't need to see it explicitly. And then, um, Kevin, this one's for you. Is is like Gwen continually haunting him while he's there married to MJ. It's 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 so tropey in and of itself. So it's really fascinating. Like what's the, the drawing line uh, of, should we keep a character dead? Should we bring them back? And it's just like every possible path can lead to a trope if you're not careful. Well, the biggest thing is just like storytelling possibility, right? I mean, look how long Barry Allen was dead. He was dead from like the 80s to what, like the mid 2000s or something. Like it's just absolutely like 20 some years um that that's really like trying to stick with it with a character death you know especially a superhero uh, but right now it's just a revolving door and it's not you know it, it it's not it, it's it's not really helping the storytelling in any way shape or form um you might as well have a resurrection protocol in all comic books at this point because they're just coming back so hard and fast constantly that death is basically meaningless odd right, chris what is your next comic book trope that you're sick and tired of <laughs> no um we have know, two more episodes to go until 100 you're no, gonna have no, to no, stick no, it out of this that long. no no just give me a two episode arc where i finally feel uh i, I realize that um we need this ep- uh, we need this podcast together and it takes both of us to do it and then i'll come back triumphantly for the 100th episode have you heard this story before um <laughs> yes so i think asm 50 did it famously maybe first, I don't know, but probably did it the best. And then every iteration of it since then has been like a cheap knockoff. And like, it's just been done to death, pun intended. Um, it's, it's just like, how many times do I need this ghost of Christmas past, uh, present and future that, you know, oh, I actually do make a difference in the world. I guess I should put the 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 costume back on. And I actually do mean something to the public and they don't hate me. And it's, it's just like silly and it's been done to death. And, and thankfully I haven't seen it a whole lot recently, but like in, uh, if you, if you're going to do a read through in Spider-Man comics, good God, get ready for it. Oh, he, he quits like every other week, doesn't he? Yeah. He's got a, he's got a, uh, he's got a, a two weeks notice, uh, like on his quick docs. Like it's it's like a suggested document when he logs in. Isn't there like isn't there like a flip side to this trope too though, where um they don't stop wearing the costume but they quit their private life. They're like my private life he is did such that a mess. In the, I'm just gonna he, be. Yeah, he did that in the '90s a lot. Where um I'm thinking specifically of like the Maximum Carnage era, where he's just like yes. it's it's a big mess out there, so I might as well just stay in costume. Like, bro, you better wash that mess. <laughs> ba- yeah yeah batman i hope you have a closet full well. i hope you have a closet full because honey whew. batman has done that before too and then there was a superman storyline uh, a few years back and by a few years i mean in the 90s because i'm that old um called the death of clark kent where somebody starts coming after clark kent in particular and he decides i'm, I'm not going to be clark kent anymore i'm just going to be superman so um, those kinds of things have occurred on the other side of the fence as well. Um, and either scenario, I think, either trope, the my my private life sucks, I'm going to be superhero full-time, or my superhero life sucks, I'm going to stop 
being a superhero are just silly because, well, we, we're obviously here to buy this comic book. So it's obviously going to get undone pretty much immediately. Otherwise, why in the world are we reading this comic book, right? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a silly trope, to say the least. All right. I'm excited to dive into your second one because it is a really interesting one. Yeah, I'm I'm sick and tired of event comics, uh, comic book crossovers, big you know, blockbuster crossovers that happen once or twice a year at, at either a company or sometimes more frequently when they're really hard up for cash. So the problem here is not the concept of event comics itself. Uh, having a crossover is a really always a, a fun you know basic scenario, and and kind of taking a blockbuster movie approach to a comic book storytelling is. Uh, is is excellent. Uh, the problem is the execution, what they have been doing in recent years with those. Um, so what do we end up with that, that's problematic in event comic books? Well, number one, oftentimes uh, nobody acts the way they're supposed to um, because the writer uh, of the event comic itself isn't maybe well enough versed in how the characters are being portrayed in their monthly adventures. And we get you know some severely off character portrayals uh i'm thinking um tony stark in civil war um and then of course uh captain marvel carol danvers in civil war 2 come to mind pretty much immediately um other problems that you have is the concept of the tie-in comic book which oftentimes completely derails a particular creative team's momentum in their own storytelling because they have to have a couple of tie-in issues suddenly out of nowhere with the nearest event. Um, And then, even with tie-ins, another problem that we're ending up with is that they're either A, pretty much useless because all the main action takes place in in the main series, and these are all just, you know, minute things that don't matter in the grand scheme of things and then just feels like you're treading water when you buy them or the flip side which is you know i think worse and i think secret invasion over at marvel did where the main miniseries the main event becomes basically a series of fight scenes and all the meaningful story uh, the meaningful story stuff um the meaningful character moments happens in the tie-ins of which there are sometimes between 80 and 200 depending on which event we're talking about which brings me to the final criticism of event comic books is that it's impossible to read the whole story at any point because nobody can afford that crap without a second mortgage chris thoughts yeah man um as a mutant fan this is particularly traumatizing for me when i think about event comics i'm looking at you avengers versus x-men and in inhumans versus x-men why are we always versus the x-men what 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 is it always against the mutants you have you know avengers versus x-men where um mutants have created their own little self-replicating uh self-reliant uh, um, Utopia, literally named Utopia, and then the cops come. And by the cops, I mean the Avengers. We're like, listen, what's going on here, guys? Oh, the Phoenix Force has come back. Mm, we can't be having that. Uh, and so, yeah, the Avengers bust up the party, and uh, there's that. Um, and then, in view, uh, as that wasn't bad enough, then shortly thereafter, we have Inhumans versus X-Men because the mutants are having too much of a good time. We need to uh, poison them with the Terrigen mists and, you know, kill them off. So, uh, yeah, particularly, particularly sore subject with me and a lot of, uh, the mutant fandom. 
Um, I can count on one hand the number of events, crossovers that I've enjoyed. Oh, I say all that. Look, we've got Judgment Day where the Eternals are apparently judging the mutants and all the things that have goings on of Krakoa as well. So please excuse me if I'm, I'm, I'm leery of that coming up. Um, as, as well as Eternals, I've heard it highly recommended by several friends as much uh, you know, acclaim as that series has received. And I love Kieran, Kieran Gillen's work, and he's going to be the mastermind behind this. I'm still very leery of it. Um, seems like fool me once, you know? But I, as I said, I, was, I can count on one hand the number of events that I have actually enjoyed. Um, I think immediately, like, what common thread do they have? They have a clear, specific story. And if it does have a tie-in, it's kind of like a you know, um, kind of like a freelance thing that doesn't really have any tie-in back to the main storyline and doesn't affect it at all. So, you know, what crossover events did I enjoy? Loved Secret Wars by Hickman. Um, and all of the spinoffs or, or tie-in issues were like little mini-series that were, you know, kind of um, self-insulated. I, I think of something like Thor's, where you basically have this like detective book of um, the ultimate universe Thor investigating a murder. Um, so that was super fun. And also just the idea of, you know, Storm wielding a hammer and being a Thor, um, of Groot being a Thor. And like, that was super fun just to play with in an AU setting. Um, War of the Realms is probably my favorite event. I know that we crapped all over Jason Aaron's recent work, but this was like, one of his final like home runs because it was a clear event and it was a natural progression through the story that he was telling in the Thor book. And it, it absolutely worked. And the voices of the characters made sense, the particularly the way he wrote Logan, the particularly the way he wrote um, Spider-Man and um, the Punisher were great and, and everything just worked and it was clearly planned out. And the few tie-ins that I read were just kind of fun little, you know, team-up issues um, or something to that effect. So there's not a whole lot of crossover events that I, I go up for, but those are the first two that come to mind, and that's because they are not too much of a mess like the others. Yeah, and it, I think it bears also mentioning that a big problem with uh, event comics is that they always feel the need to, like, uh, have this like ending that means everything that you thought mm -hmm. you knew has changed yes. you know like this big status quo <laughs> shift like like we don't we don't need that you know we can have a big blockbuster story without altering the entire fabric of the cosmos as we know it like just tell a good story and get over your grandiose self and i neglected one x of or ten of swords i'm sorry i can't i can't tell if it's x or ten sometimes they like roman numerals uh ten of swords um, and that was because it was, again, uh, a very clear storyline um, that was self-insulated just in the X line of comics. We didn't have the Avengers tap dancing in or um, Fantastic Four coming in for no reason. Like it was just a clear storyline that was completely contained within the X books and, and you didn't have to worry about any of this stuff. So I don't even know if that counts as like a overarching crossover because it was just in the X line of books. So those ones I don't mind. All right, so final uh, superhero trope you can't stand, Chris. Uh, the secret identity snafus. Like, um, 
particularly not trusting your close family and friends with your identity. And this is something that I didn't realize was a trope and I didn't realize it bothered me until I saw the alternative. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of Miles Morales and like the close ties that bind with his family, just knowing up front his identity. His mom was late to the party, but at the very least he and his dad knew and they relied on each other and it strengthened their relationship and it strengthened their bond. And then um, when I read John Rogers Blue Beetle um, for homework uh, last year, his family knew about it. They, they were like, this is your duty. This is your calling. This is the responsibility that you have. And we're going to come together as a family and make this work. And so I just think that unlocks so much uh, storytelling potential on relationship building, but like the whole idea of like, I can't tell my girlfriend I'm a superhero and I need to keep this identity from her. Um, it, it's just really annoying. Uh, just uh, like all these shenanigans of like disappearing, um, you know, in a crowd, like crowded theater to change in a back alley. Sorry. Can you tell I'm talking about Peter? Sorry. Um <laughs> And then it's just, it gets, it's, it's tired and it's old and you should be able to trust your inner circle with your secret identity. Um, and, and I think that only strengthens the bond. And that's what I love about Pete and MJ together um, or Felicia, like we said last week. Um, I'm going to try to contain myself this week though. I'm going to be a good boy. Uh is like they're in on it. And as a result of them not being kept at arm's length, they can help. And, you know, so that's something that I appreciate about those relationships in contrast. And like also um, that MJ figured it out on her own because she's not a dumb dumb. Like, uh, duh, you're Spider-Man. Like, I'm not stupid. So it, it just really kind of calls into question the IQ level of everybody else that sees you disappear all the time that they can't put two and two together. But uh, yeah, I'm, I, I, I like the idea of sharing with your your close inner circle, your identity. I will agree with that. Um, I think there are exceptions to the rule. I'm, I'm kind of sideways glancing at Superman a little bit, which I think, you know, the public persona of Clark Kent uh, being so different from who Superman is is kind of in the DNA of that character. But even in that situation, when we get to like him, you know, dating Lois, guess what? He told her the truth. So, um, you know, at that point, when he had a close loved one, he he revealed who he really was to that person. Um, yeah, I, I I like to also you know look back at the Blue Beetle run from John Rogers, which was so cool with how the family was integrated into that the Google, storytelling. The Google Translate Spanish aside, that's my only criticism. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, they definitely needed somebody to take a look at that, but. Um, that particular element of the book, I think, opened up more storytelling possibilities than the standard, oh, I need to hide who I am. Um, and they did that actually with um, with Kamala Khan too. And then in the very next series featuring her, they put that genie back in the bottle. They basically undid that and now her parents are in the dark again. And I was so disappointed to see that because it added a very interesting dynamic to their family. So yeah, I think once again, uh, it's a trope that is limiting storytelling possibilities rather than expanding them. So that it's got to go. All right, Dave, uh, you are much more experienced with your final trope. I haven't seen a whole lot of this, so please learn us. Stop rebooting 
period. I'm, I'm so sick of it. I am so sick of half reboots, attempted reboots, rebooting the reboot, undoing the reboot, then to reboot again. DC, Jesus Herbert Christ, just stop, okay? <laughs> it is enough. And you know what? I'm on a sideway glance at, at Marvel and say they're not completely innocent here either. They might have not done a line-wide reboot, but let me tell you, they have dipped their toes in the water. I'm looking at you heroes reborn. Even the Ultimate Universe was basically a, I wonder what would happen if we rebooted these characters. Would our audience actually like that like they have they have dipped their toes into the reboot pool a few times to see if that's something they want to do and they always pulled back and you know stayed steadfast with their sliding you know time scale that they have but man dc is just so overdoing it you know you got it after crisis of infinite earths you have another one after infinite crisis i mean if there's a crisis there's a reboot they just recently did sort of a uh, 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 you know, then you had the new 52, then you had Rebirth, which is like rebooting to the previous reboot. It's just like, just, just tell stories with these characters and don't keep trying to quote unquote fix continuity. You're just making a bigger mess every time. Just look at Hawkman. Nobody knows what in the world is going on with Hawkman and they haven't known what was going on with Hawkman for the last 40 years. You've been trying to fix him since zero hour. Just simmer down and tell good stories and the rest will take care of itself. Stop rebooting booting the universe yeah i hope they have enough closet space for all these boots so that's all i could say <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so like even as like an outside um consumer something is trying to get into dc comics it's it's something that makes me kind of you know super cautious about you know i'm i'm reading things like the tmnt batman things and like these self-contained storylines that aren't overly into the universe because i'm like what if i dive in i i had the same experience with um stephanie brown my first homework assignment uh, a couple years back is like oh i really really love this oh wait it's done like what where'd she go and and so uh it, it's it's something that makes me very very hesitant to just dive on in um and you hit the nail on the head with with Marvel too. They may not have done a full reboot, but um, they're gonna like or renumber everything with a new volume every once in a while. And it's like this fresh and this new thing with a with like the uh, the pine tree uh, air freshener hanging from the the uh, rear view mirror. Yeah, and the thing with like Stephanie Brown is too. If you like, if you like that character, you know where do you find her? Okay, well we we'll start with the with the Chuck Dixon run on Robin, right? She pops up into the Batman books. Then she get, finally gets her own series as Batgirl. Then you have a reboot, and now suddenly she's a teenager again, and she's in uh finally has popped up in a new series called Batgirls. But you know, at that point. You know, she's so different than what she was in the last, you know, Batgirl volume that she was in that you're even wondering if it's the same character. So that's really the problem with with reboots. You don't you don't really know what you're going to get anymore. And I want to clarify my statement. I don't want to misrepresent my opinion. I am a fan with the current new number one format simply because I think it's an easier jumping on point for new readers. Like for example, with my nerd commendation here in a few minutes, I'm looking at getting into Moon Knight comics. If I were to like try to find like a particular, they usually do it with a creative run. So they're like, Oh, you need to read X and X persons. And then you're having to Google, like they came on at issue 262, but then you have to read back to this one to get that. So I think of it, you know, as I said, as a novel reader, I think of this as just like a new chapter or like a new book in the series, if you will. Um, 
So I'm, I I like the way that they do the numbering system now. And I know collectors are raging, whatever, but that's not me. I'm a reader. Um, so I'm a fan of that. I'm saying like, um, particularly like, uh, first one when slot renumbered amazing Spider-Man and it was just like, it's Pater. And he had this like laissez faire pose, you know, which I'm talking about where it was after superior. And he's like that, where it's like, uh, that, that was a reboot. Let's be call it what it is. That was a reboot. Okay. Post superior. That was a reboot. That's what I'm referring to. Not the new volume numbering. I'm a fan of that. And I think the new volume numbering, the only thing that I would do differently there to improve it a little bit is to have a section maybe in the end of the comic that's like, hey, you like this volume? Here's what you need to read to see what led up to this point. And oh, to I'm make all... it a little easier. Yes, yes. To make it a little easier for people to find their way through these 8 billion different number ones. Because, you know, not not the casual comic book reader is not going to go on, on Google for half an hour researching the intricate reading lists for each character or series. That's so not giving the a little like bit of a, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So giving a little bit of a backwards, like th- these are the stories you can read that led up to this point would have gone a long way. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's it's that is it for this week's big talk. What are your least favorite superhero tropes? Find us on social social media and let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Chris and at that Nerd Dave. After a quick break, we're back with our final segment, Nerd Commendations. And we're back, and it's time for everybody's favorite segment. All right, Chris, what are you nerd commending this week? Let's head to Cairo, man. Um, So I hinted at it very strongly last week, but I'm really digging Moon Knight on Disney+. Plus. Now, I've heard some flack that it's too slow-moving or that it's boring or whatever, but... This, for me, I'm going in completely blind. I know next to nothing about Moon Knight, uh, rather than like the quick rap sheet of he has DID, he has multiple personalities that live inside his head, um, you know, and I've also seen, I've also read like a couple of like team up issues, particularly with Spider-Man. But like, other than that, I am com- going in completely blind, like I did with Guardians of the Galaxy in 2014, when you and I saw that. And I think that is, I think that adds to the experience for me. I'm not looking at it with an overly critical eye. Sometimes I admittedly do that. Like, um, uh, I, I, and I don't want to be that person where I have like, you know, index cards, you know, and I don't want to have like a checklist you know, when I go see a movie, I just want to like, is this a good story? Is it not? And, um, and as I, I think I'm an, I'm a, I'm a patient, um, viewer, I think. And so I understand where some people are, um, saying that there's not enough going on. It's too slow moving. We're halfway through it now. Um, but I, but I appreciate the slow burn of it all. And that's why I kind of went up for Eternals. I don't need kicky punchy, like tell me a good story. And so, uh, I also look at the fact that this this particular property is probably garnered to someone of my interests. You know, the reason that I got into history before I switched my major to Spanish because, was because of ancient history. I was obsessed with mythology. I got award. I got an award in seventh grade. I remember as the mythology nut because uh, I would bug the crap out of my language arts teacher to read more mythology in class. 
And so like I've always just gravitated towards ancient history and like I like origin stories. I like, you know, all the different faiths of like what's their rationale for the origin of the universe and like I, I love creation stories and all that stuff. So mythology is in my bag and ancient history just seeing how people lived in that time has just always been for me. And so seeing, you know, the pantheon of the Egyptian gods, or at least their avatars on screen, seeing Khonshu on screen is super cool. Um, and, and so I'm really, really enjoying Moon Knight. And I think the, the camera work in particular and the directing and like, the darkness of this show and like how trippy it is, is um, probably its greatest asset. Um, there are moments when Mark slash Steven like blacks out and just wakes up in a completely different area, um, like holding a weapon or covered in blood. And that's just fascinating to me. And it's really trippy, especially if you're walk watching it like I am in a dark room. It's incredibly trippy. So, um, also, another one of the criticisms is Oscar Isaac's uh, British accent. And I have a friend from the UK uh, who says that he travels up and down the coast with his accent. Um, so, but I think that's I think that's I think that's funny in a way, especially as someone who has multiple personalities. Like that might add to it. Maybe that's an over explanation of it. And you know, Oscar Isaac does not naturally have a British accent. It's not his bag. But I think it's funny for me. Also, as Stephen, the bumbling fool it makes sense that he can't quite get his accent right to me. Um, but I, I love what uh, Oscar Isaac do, is doing in this role. Uh, accent aside. Um, I think it's, it's really brilliantly portraying this. And I'm, I've been a huge Oscar Isaac fan and we didn't get near enough Poe Dameron um, in, in the sequel trilogy. And so seeing him front and center in this property is really, really cool. And then like the, the globe trotting, thriller aspect it's it's giving shades of like um like 007 or something like that where um or like national treasure or um you know something like indiana jones where they're like going searching for these tombs and they're finding artifacts so it scratches all those itches for me for other film franchises and properties that i really really love and you combine that with the comic book flavor and seeing Konshu as like this leering deity that only he can see like he's like talking to him and like cussing him out. And like, it looks like he's just talking to himself from, from everybody else's perspective. So I really, I've really enjoyed it so far and I'm diving right in. Um, I talked last week, my friend Darwin has given me a, a recommended reading list. Um, so I'm diving right into the character and I can't believe, you know, as a huge Egyptophile that I am, that I haven't, um, dove into this character before also my my two sons are obsessed with with moon knight and so uh that'll give us something to to chat about as well because they're they're all in on this character too so definitely recommend nerd commend moon knight on disney plus um i i know that it has its detractors but i i love it i'm a huge huge fan yeah, so you got me sold. Uh, I have not watched the show yet. I've not really watched, uh, read any Moon Knight comic books either, so I know almost nothing about the character. And I'm excited to dive in as soon as I get a little time to do that. It sounds really interesting, man. Yeah, as as a horror fan, I think you're particularly going to love this. Um, it, it, it has a lot of horror elements into it. <laughs> All right, Dave, your nerd commendation is like a part two continuation. Uh, we, we, we saw this one telegraphed, I'm saying. 
So uh, last week, I nerd commended Chuck Dixon's um, run on Birds of Prey. And uh, the the next notable run after a few fill-in issues is that of Gail Simone. And holy smokes, dude, uh, this is uh, like a step up in, in, in several different ways. And, and in one way, kind of a step backward. So uh, Gail Simone's Birds of Prey run uh, begins in Birds of Prey number 56 and runs through Birds of Prey number uh, 108. And I am roughly halfway through that run so far. And I have to say there are several smart things that Simone does right out of the gate. Uh, Very early on in her run, she uh, adds to the dynamic between um, Black Canary and Oracle by smartly adding in Huntress, who's a much rougher kind of anti-authoritarian character and and kind of bumps heads with the with the other two characters and again uh, kind of goes through this process through her writing of taking these characters and making all three of them close friends as they slowly iron out their differences the storylines are really action-packed there's a lot of you know like espionage kind of things globe trot trotting things going on um and, and, you know, later on, kind of halfway through her run at the point that I'm at now, she also adds in uh, Lady Blackhawk as another member of the Birds of Prey. So she's willing to, you know, expand the roster a little bit to play around a little bit more with, you know, who the birds are rather than it just being Oracle and, and Black Canary as her one agent. Um so I'm really looking forward to continuing reading this run. The only thing that I thought was sort of a step back a little bit um, is the uh, the artwork uh, with, at the beginning of the run is predominantly at Bane's. Now I want to say that I really, 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 really like his art. I think it's absolutely fantastic. But design choice-wise, um, they reverted Black Canary to her fishnets outfit. I thought that her... Uh, general look uh, during the Chuck Dixon era was a little more practical uh, and therefore a little more grounded and and more fun. Um, and we also get the Jim Lee redesign of Huntress, which is, you know, uh, belly window to show off abs, uh, among other problems. Um, so... <laughs> Ironically, although the book is written by a woman and and that, you know, that female touch adds a lot when you have an all-female cast, the the visual part of it becomes a little, hey, you know, here's a butt shot, you know, and and, and here's a, you know, a shot of somebody bending over. And it becomes a little gratuitous in places, which I did not quite appreciate as much because it wasn't not to that degree in the previous part of Birds of Prey. Now, I am thrilled to report, though, that about halfway through the run, uh, they move away from the Jim Lee Huntress redesign, at least, and go back to original outfit, which is not nearly as um, provocative, I guess you could say, and and therefore a much more realistic outfit for somebody who is, you know, fighting crime in the trenches to wear. So yeah, the writing is just so, so smart. And it's really, really the highlight in a lot of ways. I will also say that I'm really looking forward towards the end of Gail Simone's run when Nicholas Scott comes aboard as, as the artist. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Scott's work and I really, really can't wait to see, you know, these characters being rendered by this artist. So overall, um, I would say that Gail Simone's 
uh, run is a step up from Chuck Dixon's. It's really, really good. It gets the characters' voices perfectly. Um, uh, the relationships are very interesting, almost as interesting, really, as the action and the cases that they take on. So I'm a big, big fan of Gail Simone on Birds of Prey. I don't think that's a surprise to any comic book fan. Uh, that run is very acclaimed. I just haven't ever had a chance to really sit down and read all of it. And now halfway through, I have to say, I can't wait to keep reading. First and foremost, uh, I'm a huge Gail Simone fan, even though as a mostly Marvel consumer, I haven't read a lot of her work. If for no other reason, I love her social media presence on Twitter. She's one of the few bright spots, and that is fun and chummy and just all over the place. You never know what question she's going to have, what hashtag she's going to be uh, putting out there into the ethos. But um, I will say also that one of my favorite things that came out of Birds of Prey is how close she was with the cast of Birds of Prey, particularly her interactions with Journey Smollett, who I will do anything for as Black Canary. Um, I thought it was just adorable and precious and made me want to dive right in. And so like it's it's high time. And 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 can we please make that more the norm of respectfully treating the comics creators of the property you're trying to put on the screen like let's make that the norm versus what they've done in the past i'm just gonna say that i don't think there's a writer working today that has a better sense of who barbara gordon is or or who dinah lance is like these characters uh, just are fully formed fully rendered people uh, under the penmanship of gail simone and i absolutely uh, adore that because although there have been plenty of writers who've done a good job with those characters, it seems like Gail Simone just knows them inside out, knows their voices perfectly. And, and that makes this run really, really special, Chris. Alrighty, folks. Well, that is it for episode 98 of the Nerd Byword. If you like what you heard, please find us on your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us anywhere that you can download podcasts. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and, of course, our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And as always, hit us up on social media. Talk smack to us at nerdbyword on Twitter and Instagram or individually, that nerd David, that nerd Chris. And buckle up, buttercups, because next week, we talked about it at nauseum, we are jumping to warp speed and headed to Deep Space Nine. Episode 99 of the Byword is all about our beloved Star Trek, Deep Space Nine. So if you have any questions, any input, any things you want to be featured on this all-inclusive episode, all this trip to Riza, if you will, um... <laughs> Be sure to hit us up on social media um, or give us the uh, hashtag ByWordDoesDS9. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd ByWord is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.